This morning's text, we will be in the book of Colossians. We will be reading the first 17 verses of the third chapter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God be glorified by the teaching of his word. Pray with me this morning as we come to God's word. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for the clarity of your word and how grateful we are for the power of your word. We're thankful, Father, that these are not just words that were written by mere mortal human beings according to their own understanding, according to their own imaginations or interpretations, but that these are the words of God yourself. These are the ones that you have breathed out through the prophets, through the apostles, that we might know your word and that encountering your word in all of its life-giving power, we might be changed by your word. We might be transformed by it as our minds are renewed according to it. And so that's what we pray for this morning. Holy Spirit, give us illumination and understanding as to what these words mean. And most importantly, impress them upon our hearts and our consciences that it might change the way that we live. Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, several weeks ago, we started to look together here at these words of Colossians chapter 3, where Paul is describing what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be crucified with him and buried with him in baptism, raised up with him to newness of life, as he says over in Romans chapter 7, and what the new life in Christ looks like and how it works, how it operates. And when we first started looking at Paul's teaching here about the Christian life in Christ, we saw that a big part of the context for everything that Paul's writing, not just in chapter 3, but in the whole letter, is the particular kind of false teaching that was being promoted in that place in Colossae, which Paul was responding to. And a big part of the emphasis of the false teaching in Colossae was that it was consumed with self. Consumed with self in all kinds of ways. And this is 
one of the reasons that the book of Colossians is so massively and abidingly relevant to us in 21st century America because our culture, our civilization, our society is one that once again is marked by a commitment to and a devotion to self. In Colossae, the false teachers emphasized all kinds of things like personal enlightenment, not just a truth that's true for everybody, but a truth that is true exclusively and specially and uniquely for you that comes by way of a personal enlightenment within your own mind and your own heart. And they emphasized a, a legalistic view of salvation, putting the focus on our works, putting the focus on self-righteousness. And it was also a system that emphasized a kind of mysticism that, that emphasized personal encounters with angels and spiritual beings and personal visions that were, again, unique to each individual and mystical experiences that we can and should have. And it all, see, it all focused on self. It all pointed inwardly. And in fact, really the only way that the false teaching that was being promoted there in Colossae pointed outside of self was when it was pointing to sin. Because it claimed that the root of sin and evil in the world was not in the individual person. It was out there in the world. It was in the stuff of the world. And that's why it promoted the kind of asceticism that it did, teaching that, that real spiritual growth and real maturity came from, from depriving yourself of worldly goods and worldly pleasures. Because that's where they taught all the evil was. And if you indulge in that stuff, then evil comes to be a part of you. And so the, the point being that this whole system of false teaching exalted self and at the same time diminished Jesus Christ. And in a lot of ways, so many ways, that's exactly what modern 21st century evangelical Christianity is also doing, right? That's what our whole society and even so much of what's taught in the church has become focused on, isn't it? So often the focus is first on me. The focus is first on self. And then whatever gets said about Jesus is secondary. And it's in service to that emphasis on self. It's really all about you and how you feel. And the experiences that you need to have and the blessings that you need to get. And Jesus is the cosmic butler who's in service to all of that. The contrast, of course, is, is all of Scripture. But think of the contrast, for example, in John the Baptist, who was born. His whole, the whole reason for him coming into this world was to proclaim Christ. And when Christ came, John the Baptist said, now I must decrease and he must increase. He had a following. He had disciples. He had people who believed in his ministry. Who had, he had people who looked up to him and esteemed him. And he said, it's time for me to be done. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. It's got to be all about him. And it's got to be nothing about me. And really... A lot of that is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And again, by contrast, so often and in so many ways, and, and even maybe without realizing it, the modern church has, has flipped that perspective of John the Baptist on its head. And we've put the focus mostly on us and less and less on Christ. We've made, we've made much of self and... And relative to Jesus' actual worth, we've made, we've made very little of him. We talk about him a lot, but not according to who he really is. And that's exactly what was happening in Colossae. Jesus was talked about a lot, but he was a piece of the puzzle and not the whole. Jesus was really important to them, but he wasn't supreme. Jesus was, Jesus was significant but they didn't think of him as sufficient. There was more that was needed. And all of that led to a self-righteousness and a self-determination and a commitment to personal experience. And all of those things mattered most 
And that's the stuff that, that got the preponderance of focus and attention in their teaching, in their devotion, in their attempts at piety. And so Paul's big burden all throughout the whole book of Colossians is to confront that and is to correct that by pointing out the utter and absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ for everything. And not just saying it, but, but also showing and demonstrating how Christ is all. Christ is everything if you are a Christian. Verse 11 of chapter 3 here says exactly that, right? Christ is all and He is in all. He's not a part. He's not just an add-on now to your life. He's not just an upgrade. It's not just, well, I've been doing okay, but I need something else in my life and Jesus is, is like leveling up. That's not what Jesus is. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Paul says in this book. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. He might be utterly and absolutely supreme in everything in our lives. And what Paul is urging us to understand as Christians is this. It's that, it's that Jesus is the all-supreme efficient, all-supreme one, He is our life. He's not an add-on. He's not an upgrade. He's not a supplement. He is our life. Through God-given faith, we are in Him. And everything that was our life, our old self, has been crucified. That self that was enslaved to the dominion of sin has died in Christ, with Christ. And we have been raised now with Him to newness of life. And our new self is hidden with Christ in God. It's all about Christ. And Christ is all. And so Jesus, in all of His divine majesty and, and sufficiency and supremacy, Jesus who is our life, He's got to be the whole focus of our life and the whole lens through which every other aspect of our lives is viewed through. In order to live the Christian life in this world, because this world is full of sin, this world is full of corruption, this, this world is full of deceit and temptation, and in order to live the Christian life in this world, we've got to get our eyes off of the things of this world, and probably most importantly, we've got to get our eyes off of ourselves, off of us. We've got to stop being so self-focused, so inwardly oriented, so prone to framing up our perspective around the things of this world and our own desires. And we've got to become more and more and more focused on Christ who is all and who is in all. And so it comes down to this. Here's the, here's the principle that Paul is proclaiming in Colossians. Here's the Colossian principle in chapters 3 and 4 for for how our lives are to be governed as people who are in Christ. It's just, it's just this simple. It's, it's that where our minds are focused, that's where our hearts will be oriented. Simply that. Where our minds are focused, that's where our hearts will be oriented. If my mind is focused on me and on the things of this world and on my own desires, then my heart will be oriented that way. And that's going to lead to all of the kinds of things that he's told us to put off already in chapter 3. But if my heart is focused and oriented on Christ and not on myself, that's how then I'm able to put on all of the things that he's exhorting us to put on in this chapter. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, is what Paul urges us to do. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. And what we've been seeing these past several weeks now are, are kind of the, the symptoms, right, of being self-oriented. The symptoms of being, it's, it's diagnostic, like we saw a while ago now in Galatians chapter 5. Here's how you can diagnose whether you're walking in step with the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. It's because of what happens when you're doing either one of those things. It's what's coming out of you. And here he's focused on the same thing, the symptoms of, of self-orientation versus the evidences of being Christ-oriented. 
So it's when we're inwardly focused. It's when we're self-oriented. It's when we're fixed and, and focused first and foremost on our own feelings and our own desires. That's when we start to struggle most with temptation and sinful desire and idolatry. And that sin, like sexual immorality and impurity and evil desire and covetousness and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and dishonesty, all the things we've looked at here in verses 5 through 9, that's, that's when we're focused on self, that's when that stuff starts to fester more and more and more in our lives. These are all symptoms of self-orientation. And so you say, why am I struggling so much with this? It's because you're self-oriented. How do I stop struggling so much with this? By being more and more Christ-oriented. Because the Christ-orientation, right? Minds that are focused on the things that are above, where Christ sits at God's right hand, interceding for us, reigning over sin, reigning over death, reigning over hell, on His eternal throne of grace. Minds that are focused there, and on Him, and on His supreme glory, and the sufficiency of His work, the, the sufficiency of the cross, and, and, and His heavenly glory, and majesty, and dominion, and authority, and His second coming. Minds that are consumed with all of that that He is, and has done, and will do, then produce hearts that are full of humility, and, and gratitude, and love which then gives shape to and starts to give definition to lives that are conformed to the image of the glory of Christ, clothed with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and graciousness and forgiveness, because that's all the stuff that, that Jesus is. And so the key we've been learning to the whole Christian life is, is realizing our identity and what we are and who we are in Christ Jesus and then fixing our minds on Him and on the things above where He is and framing our whole perspective of life and reality according to Him and according to all that He is. And see, so the problem in Colossae was that, that here came these false teachers tickling the ears, as Paul says over in Timothy, tickling the ears, telling people what they wanted to hear, what felt good to them according to a self-orientation. And they were teaching all about how to live the, the Christian life, but in a different way. And, and it was misrepresenting Jesus, and it was diminishing Jesus, and it was taking the focus off of him and putting it more and more on, on self. And that is, that is the same strategy that Satan still loves to employ even this day convincing us that Jesus is a really, really important part, but the real essence of the Christian life and the real power, actually, to the Christian life lies inside of us. And the experiences that we have and the feelings that we feel and the things that we do and the things that we don't do, it all has to do with us, like chasing that car, that sports car down the highway and trying to match its speed. Won't ever work. But Paul is adamant that while those kinds of things that were emphasized by the false teachers then and are still emphasized by false teaching in our world today, while those might look good and hold the appearance of wisdom to us, he says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't do any good. They can't possibly Self-focused things, self-focused means unto holiness, like mystical charismatic experiences or, or teaching that tickles the ears and makes us feel really good about ourselves, tells us what we want to hear, focuses on our felt needs primarily. It might feel good, it might seem profound, it might seem powerful, it might seem inspiring to us, but in reality, those things hold no earthly power, no heavenly power, no actual power, certainly not the power of God, not the strength of the Holy Spirit to be able to transform our lives. It's the power of God, isn't it? It's the power of the Holy Spirit that creates and sustains and strengthens and grows the new creation of the life of Christ in us. 
And that's the work that God the Holy Spirit is doing when our focus is, is outward and upward instead of downward and inward. When it's not on self, but when it's on Christ, when it's, when it's fixed on the things that are above and not consumed with the things of this earth. And so in these chapters, in this chapter that we've been looking at, we're going to now focus on verses 15 through 17 here, where Paul gives us a series of, a series of exhortations that really, really help us to keep our focus in the right place. So, so why am I struggling so much with these temptations and these worldly things? It's because my focus isn't in the right place. How do I get my focus in the right place? How do I keep my focus in the right How do I improve my focus more and more? Here he gives us some, some critical God-breathed advice and exhortation that will help us to keep our focus fixed in the right place. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he says there in verse 15. Be thankful, secondly, he says. And then thirdly, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in verse 16. And then teaching and admonishing one another and then singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then finally in verse 17, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Those are six powerful exhortations packed into three verses that, that keep us focused, that keep us fixed on the specific ways through which the Holy Spirit is, is working in order to form Christ in us. So if we want to grow in grace, if we want to put off sin and put sin to death, if we want to put off the, the, the sinful habits of the old self and put on the things of Christ, if we want to be the body of Christ in this world, manifesting His grace and His righteousness and His truth, these are the things that we've got to be doing on a regular, ongoing, consistent, constant basis. And the first one is, is simply this. We must let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And as you think about that phrase, the peace of Christ and letting it rule in your heart, understand this. The peace of Christ, the peace that comes from Christ, the peace that, that, that Jesus Christ gives to His people, it needs to be understood in two ways. Two Senses. One of them is individual for you personally, and one of them is corporate for us collectively. So Jesus said, first of all, he said to his disciples in John chapter 14, he said about peace. This is what he said. He said, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so on the one hand, see... The peace of Christ means the peace that Christ gives to us from His Word and from His Gospel. All the truth that He teaches us about who He is as the sovereign God of this universe and what He does as our Redeemer and our Savior in order to make us His own people and hold us like, like lambs in His all-powerful shepherding arms. On the one hand, the peace of Christ means an inward sense of calm that Jesus gives to His own people and that they experience, that we experience in our hearts, in our lives, even in the presence of great trouble in our lives and in this world because our eyes are fixed on Him. I have a really big problem, but when I look at it in relief of uh, in, in comparison to Jesus Christ, then compared to His sovereign majesty, it becomes much, much smaller relative to Him. And I can experience a calm knowing that He is with me, that He is sovereign over it, that He is able, and that He cares, and that He loves me, and that He is good. That's what the peace of Christ means in a, an individual sense. Jesus sits at God's right hand. 
Jesus is invested with all of the power and sovereign authority of heaven and of the God who he is. And he is interceding with us. And he is with us always. He is our rock. He is our shelter. He is our high tower. He is our ultimate and everlasting refuge. He is our mighty fortress, as Ian preached to us last week. It's who Jesus is. Psalm 46. And whenever there are hard trials roiling in our lives and we're not experiencing the peace of Christ, which, which is that inner sense that tells us, let not your heart be troubled. I, I know you're going through hard experience, but let not your heart be troubled and let your heart not be afraid. Whenever we're not experiencing that, it's not because Jesus isn't there speaking those words to us. He is he always is, isn't he? Because we're in him. And we have his word and his word abides in us. He's always saying, let not your heart be troubled. But you know what my problem is? I have trouble listening. I have trouble hearing. And the voice of the trouble so often becomes louder than the voice of my mighty fortress savior God. My identity is that I'm in Him. And if I'm not experiencing His peace in the midst of my adversity, it's never because He's not there speaking it. It's always because I'm not listening. I'm not paying attention to Him. I'm letting the, the trouble and my own fear drone it out because I'm not paying attention. I'm not focused on Him and His sovereign power and His dominion over this entire universe and His mercy and His grace and His goodness and the fact that He has always done good things for me. And I get too busy looking at and thinking about and worrying about all of the trouble out there and all the way that it's affecting me. And all of that is what seems big to me and then Christ seems small. You ever, you ever experienced that? The world seems too big. The trouble seems too big. The fear seems too big. The problem seems impossible. And Jesus seems small. He's not small. I'm just not paying attention. I'm just not properly focused. And so we've got to remember, whenever we're in the midst of the storms of our lives, whatever they are, however big they are, however ferocious they are, He is infinitely bigger it's not a matter of our perspective it's just a matter of whether we're trusting in who and what he is he is the one who commands the storms and the winds and the waves isn't he and he's always with us he's never forsaken us he always causes all things to work together for our good so what do we do when we're being squeezed by the the trials and the hardships of our lives well, we flee to Jesus. Again, when we were preaching about Jesus being the Lord of the storm from the Gospel of Matthew, I talked about that Rembrandt painting hanging out there in the, in the lobby. You remember? Which pictures Jesus and all of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee during that big storm that was rocking the boat. And they were freaking out and panicking while Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat. And, and there's all kinds of different ways that the disciples are portrayed, the 12 of them in that boat with Jesus, that reflect well upon the ways that we try to deal with the storms and the trials of our lives. And that we don't sense the peace of Christ in our hearts. There's disciples who are up at the front of the boat where Jesus is not. He's at the back, they're at the front, they're not with him, they're on their own, and they're using their own strength. They're working frantically to try to set the sails and, 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 and steer the boat and to try, to try to keep the boat from foundering, but they're doing it all in their own strength. The, their focus is not fixed on him, it's fixed on the storm, and it's fixed on what they can do about it. How often is that what we do? Then there's the, the other disciples who are, they're leaning over the sides of the boat. Focused on the storm, focused on themselves, but they're not filled with self-confidence that might enable them to try to do something about it. They, they feel helpless. They feel hopeless. 
And so all they can do is heave over the sides of the boat in despair. And then there's the ones, the disciples, who are in the back where Jesus is. And they're, what are they doing? They're gathered around him. They're looking to him. They're pleading with him. Even though he said their faith was small. Jesus said your faith is, is little because you're panicking so much. But it was focused on the right thing. It was focused in the right place. It was focused on him. And that's where we need to be in the storm. And too often it's the last place that we are. It's the last place I am. Too, too often I'm wrestling with those ropes and those masts and those sails. And then when it's not working, then I'm heaving over the side and freaking out and panicking. We're going to sink. We're all going to die. That's what they were doing. But they needed to be at his feet. And that's where I need to be. That's where we need to be. Drawing near to his throne of grace. Because we know where he is. We know who he is. We know what he's done to give us access to that throne of grace in every time of need. And that he will lavish grace and mercy on us in every time of need. So why aren't we there with him? Because we're not focused on him. Because we're too consumed with the storm. And with what we might be able to do about it. And with what might happen if we don't succeed. And that's the way in which, see, he gives us peace. Being with him, communing with him, constant prayer to him, filling our minds with his word, focusing on him is the way in which he teaches us to say, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And so... And so Paul says, this is what you need to be doing, what I need to be doing, what all of us need to be doing individually. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let it reign. Let it have dominion over your heart and not your fear. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And so he's also speaking corporately, isn't he? In the other sense that that he's talking about the peace of Christ. The other aspect is, is corporate, not just individual. It needs to be the peace that pervades his body, the church. Peace among the members of his body. Peace that is the result of the fruit of the Spirit being born in all of our lives and manifested towards one another. Peace that comes because our collective response to difficulties and to trials and to sin and to not always seeing eye to eye with one another our collective response to all of that is is the stuff that that Jesus clothes us with which, which is what we were looking at previously right compassion kindness humility meekness patience long-suffering forgiveness look we're not always going to agree with each other we're going to have differences sometimes we're going to sin against one another sometimes. And it needs to be met with those things as our eyes together are locked on Jesus. When those attitudes are what characterize the people of God, then peace is what characterizes the church of Jesus Christ. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, long-suffering, forgiveness. All of that leads to peace, not division, not rivalry, not contentiousness, not factiousness. All of those things that, that very often do characterize churches and that many of you have sadly been afflicted by. All of those things come from being focused on self instead of on Christ. Paul says, let the, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You know what the word rule means literally in Greek? It means to arbitrate like, like a judge, to act like a judge. And, and in fact, more than one Greek lexicon defines this word rule with the English word umpire, which I think is kind of cool. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire. That's how you think about it. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your hearts. Let it officiate 
in your individual life and also in the body of Christ. Let your attitudes, let our behaviors, let our speech be governed, be constrained, be dictated, be officiated by the peace of Christ, by His compassion, by His patience, by His humility, by His love. So that if we're tempted to tear one another down, if we're tempted to gossip, if we're tempted to slander, if we're tempted to be impatient, if we're tempted to push someone aside, if we're tempted to wash our hands of someone and be done with them, if we're tempted to say things that, that diminish them in order to make ourselves seem greater, if we're tempted to let fear and anxiety get the better of us or, or anger or wrath or bitterness or selfishness, then the peace of Christ should come in and, and blow the whistle and say, you're out of line. Like an umpire calling a foul on us, like, like pulling a red card on us. The peace of Christ must officiate and send us to the penalty box and say, you've got you to sit for a while until you can get refocused on Christ and filled with His peace. Let the peace of Jesus, who slept in the back of the boat as the wind and the waves raged, let the peace of Jesus, who said, while hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, let that peace of Christ rule and officiate and be the umpire in your life and in our church no matter what stormy circumstances there are in our lives and in our world and all around us. And then close on the heels of that exhortation comes the second one. Paul says, and be thankful. So let peace rule and let gratitude thrive. Let gratitude thrive. And I don't think that Paul just threw thankfulness in here as a, an afterthought. Let peace rule and while you're at it, just add a dash of thankfulness and that'll just round everything out and blend it all together nicely. Peace and gratitude necessarily go together. You can't really have one without the other. If we're properly focused on the things that are above where Christ is, if our attention is consistently focused more on Him and His glory and holiness and majesty and sovereign mercy than it is on the cares of this world and the circumstances of our lives and the desires of our hearts, if, if, if the realities of the exalted Jesus are framing our whole outlook, then gratitude will be a prevailing disposition of our hearts no matter what's going on around us, right? So that we could even say with, with Paul, I'm, I'm grateful and I rejoice even in my trials. Praise God for afflicting me. <laughs> because with the psalmist in Psalm 119, who I think may, may very well have been Daniel, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn to keep his statutes. Because before I was afflicted, I went astray. And then God gave me a hard trial which kept my focus on Him and, and had me crying out to Him for mercy and then He was giving me mercy and He was drawing me unto Himself, providing for me and keeping me. And then I stayed in line with Him. This is how God works, right? Some of the first words that Paul wrote here in the letter to the Colossians which remember, he had never been to this church before. He, he wrote this letter from, from prison. When Epaphras came to visit him and say, hey, we need help. So Paul's circumstances were pretty lousy com compared to any... I've never been in prison in first century Rome. Some of the first letters he wrote or first words that he wrote when he wasn't exactly you know, kicking back on the Riviera, sipping Mai Tais. He's being persecuted here. He's being mistreated here. He, he wrote this letter to a bunch of people he'd never met. He could have just said, I don't know who you are, and I've never met any of those people, and it's not my problem, so you go shepherd them. I got my own stuff going on, but he didn't say that, right? Bert, listen to the first words that he wrote. He said, we always thank God for you. Isn't that wonderful? 
I've never met you before. And you're suffering. And I thank God for you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, even in prison, gratitude is prevailing in Paul's heart. You know what matters more than the fact that I, as, as one person, am in prison? Is that there's a whole church over there in Colossae that have a, 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 an abiding faith in Jesus Christ. Same thing in Philemon. He says, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers. And in Ephesians, he wrote Ephesians from prison too, right? He says, he, he says well, he doesn't say, I thank God for you at the beginning, but this is what he does say from the get-go in Ephesians. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on for, for, for 11 more verses, and it's all one long run-on sentence in the Greek. As Paul throws, he just throws good grammar right out the window, no periods, no commas, he's just, he's just rambling about God's blessings as he fires off this running list of things that are ours in Christ Jesus, which is, what, that's an expression of massive gratitude, isn't it? Even though I'm in chains, I'm so thankful for these lavish blessings that I have in Christ. And it's, it's in tendency to provoke that same kind of gratitude to the people in Ephesus. So there he is sitting in prison. He's been beaten. He's been flogged for his faith. And instead of bickering, instead of complaining, instead of, instead of pouring out self-pity, Instead of focusing on himself and on his miserable circumstances, he's focused on Christ and on Christ's glory and on all the lavish blessings that are ours in him. And he just he can't, he can't help pouring all that out and rambling on and on. And then right after he does, he says in Ephesians 1.15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you all. And there it is. In every last one of the letters that Paul wrote from prison, gratitude is the dominant atmosphere of his heart. And that's convicting when I don't need to be anywhere near a prison cell to be full of ingratitude and bickering and complaining and discontentment. And the reason why it was was because Paul was so much more focused on the glories and the blessings of Christ than, than he was on the cares and circumstances of this world and his own life. And again, how challenging is that? When I, when I think most of us at least could say honestly that the challenges of our lives don't really hold a candle to what he was going through. And so Paul could say things like he said in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can't even compare them. Or 2 Corinthians 4, though our outer self is wasting away, I'm being beaten to death here, but my inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, focus not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient. They're vapor. They go away. They don't last. They're not eternal. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. The mind that is fixed on Christ and heaven and eternity and that is looking to the unseen things by faith instead of being distracted and overwhelmed by the things that we see with our eyes, that's the mind through which the Holy Spirit is producing gratitude and peace. Gratitude for all the unfathomably great and eternal blessings of Christ. And, and, and then that's the heart where, where the peace of Christ rules and reigns and officiates by His grace and by His strength. That's the life that more and more is, is learning to say, it, it is well with my soul. It hurts. It doesn't feel good. But it is good because God is good and so it is well with my soul. 
and what that requires, what's got to be happening for that gratitude and peace to be thriving and ruling and reigning in our hearts and lives, that the chief and primary thing that the Holy Spirit uses to supernaturally forge those attitudes and, and that atmosphere of soul within us, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our sin and weakness and feebleness, the means that the Holy Spirit uses primarily is the living, active Word of God. Only the living, active Word of God through which He speaks with divine power can accomplish that peace and gratitude in our hearts even when life is really, really painful. Divine power is invested in the Word of God. Let there be light kind of power. Lazarus, come forth kind of power is in this word and only his word which points us all to Christ and in, in, in everywhere in scripture is, is pointing to Christ you understand right the high priest in the Old Testament is pointing you straight to the great high priest of Christ every sacrifice of the Old Testament is pointing you straight to the ultimate lamb of God the temple is pointing to him and his resurrected glory and and the fact that now we abide in Him and He abides in us. Everything in Scripture is pointing us to Christ and all of His splendor and glory and supremacy and sufficiency and only that and only He can, can forge gratitude and peace and holiness in our hearts and in our lives as we're fixed on Him and abiding in Him. So, verse 16, in order to get there, in order to have the peace of Christ ruling, in order to be full of gratitude no matter what's going on, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly. Dwell, of course, you know, means much more than to visit on occasion. That's what your in-laws do when they come and stay with you. They visit and you, you hope it's a visit and that they're not moving in, right? You're, maybe you're glad that they're there and, and you're probably really glad when they go. But they're not dwelling. But, but Paul says here that the word of Christ has to dwell. It can't come and pop in once in a while for a little visit and then leave and leave you alone to do things your own way again. It's got to be dwelling in you. So be honest. In the privacy of your own mind and heart, does God's living, active word dwell in you? Or does it just pop in now and again? Well, what truly dwells in your mind and heart is all the me-centered, self-centered thoughts and desires and attitudes and all of the worldly wisdom that corresponds to self-centered thoughts and desires and attitudes. Is, maybe that's what dwells in you while the Word of God comes by for a visit once in a while. And then you try to clean up, right? If the Word of God's going to come, then i gotta, like, I got to clean up the house of my life and push everything into the closet and sweep it all under the bed real quick because the Word of God's coming over, because Christ's coming over. And then when He goes, you go, oh, and you let your hair down, and then it's back to worldly, self-focused dwelling. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you and let it dwell in you richly. Richly means abundantly. Richly means plentifully. Richly doesn't mean a little bit. Let it dwell long and let it dwell deep in you. Now what does that look like? Be careful. Be careful. Because it's all too easy in our self-focused self-righteousness to even make Bible reading a legalistic work of self-righteousness or, or an external work of religious formalism instead of a, a time of spiritual richness in Christ. I've known a lot of people who gave themselves to Bible reading plans every month, every year, and to Bible memorization, but I'll tell you what, it wasn't making a difference in the way they lived their lives. Kent Hughes says, God's word must be read 
and meditated on under the influence of the Holy Spirit if it is to dwell richly in us. Richness comes, he says, when as we are yielded to the Holy Spirit, we meditate on some passages and memorize others and then do what they say. It's not just a question of disciplined reading. It's a matter of the heart. It is spirit-filled participation in Christ and in His Word. So, so letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly can't just mean reading it at a bare level, even if you read it a lot. It can't only mean that. It's got to start there, of course. Can't dwell in you at all if you're not reading it. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of unbelievers who read the Bible. A lot more than a lot of believers do. But they don't believe. And there's a lot of believers who read God's Word a lot, but, but a lot of times it's kind of like a, a rock skipping off the surface of the pond. And the top of the rock barely gets wet. They're reading to sort of check that discipline off the list. I did it. I did my reading. And boy, if they really devote themselves to a really robust Bible reading schedule and they, they crank through the whole Bible in a year or maybe twice in a year, or if they're really spiritual, maybe three times in a year, then they can feel really good about themselves. But the problem is, they're reading out of obligation only. They're reading and memorizing bucket loads of Scripture without letting any of it sink down and dwell and dwell richly in them. And I fear that a lot of Christians read God's Word like that. And it, it reminds me of those, this is a gross illustration, but it reminds me of those professional hot dog eaters that once in a while you see on TV, right? And, and it's like you're given... You're given two minutes to see how many hot dogs you can eat. And these, these crazy people can shove, I don't know, 100 hot dogs, 200 hot dogs down their gullet in, in, in 60 seconds or 120 seconds. Don't be like that with God's Word. Don't just hork it all down so that there's so much of it in you that you can't even digest it. That's what they say. They get, this guy like ate 10,000 calories worth of hot dogs, but... He's going to eliminate it all before his, his body has an opportunity to digest it and, and put any of those calories to work. Don't be like that with God's Word. Reading is essential. Don't misunderstand me. Reading plans are good. Don't misunderstand me. Where you cover a lot of ground so that you actually read all of God's Word, that's a good thing. But be careful. Memorizing God's Word is a really good thing so that you're hiding it in your heart so that it comes to mind when you need it. That's a good thing. Not saying it's not. Just be careful to savor God's word and not just shove it down and not be able to digest it or have it nourish you. It can't just be a mechanical exercise. You've got to meditate on God's word. You've got to understand it. Some of you were here many, many years ago when Dr. Jim Greer was still alive and he used to come to our church and preach to us and he wouldn't use any notes. You guys remember that? No notes. He just had this little Bible, and he'd walk around the stage like this, and then once in a while he'd flip somewhere. And, and oftentimes he didn't even have to flip because he just had it so much in his mind and in his heart, and his whole sermon was all there. And he was an amazing preacher and an amazing man of God. And one time he said to me, Steve, and this was very early on in our time here, like 2002 maybe, and he said to me, Steve... He said, when you've done all the reading for your sermon preparation and you've exegeted the text and you really understand what it means and you've written out your outline and you've come, come to have your sermon all put together, he said, you're about 40% ready to get into the pulpit. He said, you have to spend so much more time than that meditating on this word yourself so that it lights a fire in you and you're passionate about it. And before that happens, you have no business being in any pulpit. And that was, that was the most impactful thing anybody's ever said to me about preaching. The word of God has to dwell in you richly before you can even presume to, to say anything about it. And that's how it is with all of us, even if you're not going to preach it. 
It's got to abide in you and it's got to, it's got to be rich in you. you. You've got to bask in its truths and let it frame your outlook on life and give perspective to your circumstances and calm your restless soul and douse your fears and quell your doubts and, and anxieties. And you've got to let it wash the temptations away and, and, and d- dilute all the fleshly desires that you feel with the, with the waters of, of its purity and holiness. You can't, just, you can't just go read a bunch. You've got to dwell on it and meditate on it and let it do those kinds of things to you. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, some people like to read so many Bible chapters every day and I would never dissuade them from that practice, but I would rather lay my soul to soak in half a dozen verses all day long than just rinse my hands quickly in several chapters. Oh, to be bathed in a single verse of Scripture and let it be sucked up into my very soul until it saturates my heart. Read your Bible like that. Read your Bible like that. And if you get through one chapter, if you get through three verses and you can't get past them because they're just screaming the the glory of Christ to you, that's okay. And keep reading it like that. Soak in it, marinate in it, let it get into you and let it push godliness and gratitude out of you, which is the next thing that Paul says, isn't it? As we're letting the word of Christ abide in us and dwell in us richly like this, then it needs to come pouring out of us, and he lists two massively important ways. First, verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching means exactly what you think it means. It just means to, to provide instruction, to explain, to make the meaning of something clear to someone. And that's what we want to do with God's Word, right? We want to make it clear, all of it. We don't want to cut corners. We don't want to avoid any of the divine revelation that God has given us because it doesn't tickle people's ears and it may not be what they want to hear. We don't want to let misunderstandings about the meaning of God's word go unchecked. We don't want to let false teaching to have have any footholds or toeholds or have any opportunity to, to worm into the cracks in our lives. What we do want is for the living, active, life-transforming Word of God in all of its fullness and in all of its richness to be understood and to be relished and to be reveled in and then to be unleashed in all of its, its fullness and soul-searching and sin-exposing and holiness-forging and God-exalting power. That's what we want. We want it to be unleashed in our lives. That's what happens when the word of Christ richly abides in us. When it does, we want to pour it back out. We want to go to somebody and say, hey, I was meditating on this verse. Somebody's struggling. Somebody's having a temptation. Somebody's feeling discouraged. And you come to them with the word and you go, last time I was discouraged, God spoke this word to me here. And it lifted me up. That's what we want to do. We want to share it and revel in it together. Even when that means sharing the warnings that God's word gives us. That's what the word admonishing means there in verse 16. It means to warn someone, to avoid something dangerous, to correct someone who's doing something wrong. And God gives us all kinds of admonitions, doesn't he, in his word. Against foolishness and disobedience and sin, unrighteousness and false teaching and he admonishes us to, to walk according to the ways of holiness and righteousness and to seek the things that are above where Christ is. The word of Christ is, is, is the definition of wisdom. You, you cannot understand this world or your life in this world or the eternity that God has set in your heart. You can't understand it at all if you're not letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And lovingly, graciously, gently, and humbly teaching and admonishing one another in Christ that way. And then he says, not just teaching, but singing. As the word of Christ dwells in you richly, it needs to come pouring out, not just in teaching, but in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the other outflow with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. That's the other outflow of what happens when the word of Christ is dwelling richly in us. 
my voice is shot from bronchitis this week, and so the words came up on the screen this morning, and I started to try to sing, and it, it sounded terrible, and I was embarrassed because Ian was standing next to me, and I, but it's like, I just want to sing. Don't you just want to sing when you get to church? It's been a hard week, and things have been rough, and so that's why we come. And let God's word abide in us. And then we, want, we just want to pour it out. We just want to sing praises to our God. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. That's life. Worship is, worship is life. This is how the Psalms work, right? They're the outflow of hearts that are full of the rich and dwelling word of God in every situation of life. And so there's, there's heartfelt confession of sin and there's heartfelt seeking the, the mercy of God in brutal trouble and sorrow. There's times when the lines have crossed in pleasant places and there's pouring out of praise. There's even walking through the valley of the shadow of death and any and every kind of season and circumstance of life when the word of God is dwelling richly in us God's truth and wisdom and grace and love and his presence and his power and his holiness and his justice comforts us heals us calms us encourages us steadies us breaks us down and then binds us back up revives us and makes us just want to praise him as the great God who he is so in other words, God's living active word can't just have a massive impact on our minds and on our understanding and on our wills. It has to impact all of those, but it has to also have a massive impact on our souls, on our hearts, which we learned in Ephesians 5 a while ago when we studied Paul saying something very similar to this. Our hearts are the seat of our emotional lives. And God's word has to absolutely impact that part of us as we are made in God's image as well. And it's all going to come pouring out in teaching and admonition and in praise and in song like it did in the Psalms and all, all kinds of other places in Scripture. When the word of Christ dwells in us richly, it comes pouring out in praise. Just like it did in David's life and Asaph's life and Moses' life and Mary's life. The magnificence that she sang Paul's life. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, Paul says in Romans 11, right? How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Paul's soul is, is overwhelmed with the unfathomable richness of the truth of Christ to such a degree that he just can't contain himself and he's just pouring it out. He's letting it rip in song. And, 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 and Paul, see, Paul didn't need any man-made mechanisms of this world to make that happen, right? He didn't need, like, flashy lights and fog machines in order to get excited. He just needed God's Word to stir him up and provoke praise within him. And so it comes down to this as we close here today. Verse 17. S sort of a summary, right? Whatever you do, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything in the name of Jesus, because He is everything. He is all, and He is preeminent. He's all the fullness of God. He's supreme over everything. He's sufficient for everything. He is everything. Apart from Him, there is nothing, and we can do nothing but in Him. We can do all things. And so, we must let Him be everything in our lives. Not a piece, not a part, not just, not just here on Sunday. We have to seek and set our minds on the things that are above always. We have to frame our whole outlook with Christ always. We have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts always. We have to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly always. And so the question to ask as we close is, and you can ask it at any given time during your day, any given day of your week. The question is, can what I'm doing right now, can what I'm saying right now, can what I'm looking at on the internet or on TV right now, can it be done in the name of Jesus? Jesus.
can it? Try that the next time you're faced with temptation. Try that the next time you're really angry at somebody and you're about to slander them. Or you're about to go behind their back to somebody else and gossip about them in order to make them look less so that you can make yourself look better. Can you do that in the name of Jesus who came down and died for that person and shed his blood for that person, shed his blood for you? Can you say, I do this in Jesus' name? If you cannot, then it has no place in your life, whatever it is. Because he's everything. Because Christ is all. And our lives are not our own. We've been bought with the price of his blood. We exist to bring glory to him in everything. Because he is our life. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let gratitude thrive in you. Let His Word dwell richly in you. Let it come pouring out of you in humble, gracious teaching and admonition and and in God-exalting and Christ-magnifying praise. Do everything in His name. Let us preach Christ. Let us sing of Christ. Let us look upon Christ. And let us become what we behold. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll sing, All glory be to Christ. Our God and our Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for your servant, Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for these truths that you have revealed to us in Colossians chapter 3, where, Father, you point out all of the ways in which we walk according to flesh and according to self and according to the ways of this world. And then, you point out all of the ways in, what it, in which it, it looks like to walk according to Christ and to be in Him and to be filled with Him. And then you admonish us uh, uh, to do it and, and you tell us how. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us strength, that you would help us not only to understand but to do. Father, let us not just be hearers of the Word of God, but doers that live our lives for the sake of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.